Welcome to the QAV podcast. If you're brand new, I just want to introduce the podcast a little bit so you know what you're getting yourself into. If you've listened to the show before, feel free to just fast forward a minute or two. If you're brand new, here's the deal. Uh, my name's Cameron Riley. Tony Kynaston is an old friend of mine. He's a very successful share market investor. I'm talking very, very, very successful. He's been doing it 30 years. He's one of the best in the country in terms of a private investor. Very good uh, track record over 30 years. And what this podcast is about is Tony basically teaches me everything that he knows about investing in the stock market. And you get to listen. But if you're coming into this for the first time, you'll find that this episode, the current episodes, assume a certain level of prior knowledge. We assume that you know what we're talking about, his system, his methodology, which we explain in earlier episodes. So feel free to listen if you want to get the vibe for what's going on, but some of it's not going to make much sense unless you understand what the checklist is, etc. I recommend if you're brand new, you go back and listen to uh, Season 3, Episode 1, Episode 3 and Episode 5, where we go into Tony's background and his system and his methodology in a lot more detail. And then feel free to listen to the contemporary episodes, the current episodes. You'll understand more of the context of what we're talking about. With that, let's get into today's show. I said I was ready and I realised I had a cup of tea brewing so I had to go outside and get it. Oh, okay. Outside? Outside your room? Yes, I'm sitting in a quiet bedroom in Wagga. Who knew Wagga could be so noisy? (laughs) What's going on in Wagga? Cars. What are you doing in Wagga, Wagga, Tony? Visiting my friend Mark Rudd, having a nice old time. Oh, didn't you just get on the piss with him like a week ago? I thought you were still recovering <laughs> from being on the piss with Mark the last time we talked. Well, it's a common theme. <laughs> yeah. We had a good old chin wag and a, and a half a bottle of scotch and a few bottles of red wine on Saturday night, which was good. Nice. What day. scotch were you drinking? Oh, cheap ones. I actually bought that bottle that you were given. Um, Ben Moriah. That's the one. Yeah, but we haven't opened that one yet. We've been getting rid of all the old Glen Morangi, which is not bad. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. Well, welcome back to QAV, everyone. 351, episode 351, recorded on the 2nd of November 2020. One day before, well, two days, I guess, in Australia before the uh, presidential elections in the United States. Just had the election in Queensland on the weekend. Anastasia was brought back in and actually picked up some seats, I think. So I assume that's a little bit of a golf clap for her for uh, keeping our border (laughs) closed despite the uh, furor from the Murdoch media. Do you think the border should be open? I think the border should be open when our chief medical officer determines that it should be open. Yes, I I agree. Do you know the political affiliations of the chief medical officer? (laughs) I don't. But, uh, you know, I'm not qualified to make uh, any decisions about anything, really, let alone uh, how we handle a pandemic. So that's, uh, yeah. Well, I think you're right, Cameron. I think Australia's done incredibly well at managing the pandemic. So it's hard to criticise, isn't it? Yeah, the uh, market's taking a bit of a beating again so far today, Tony. But, you know, something that I just wanted to um, point out to our listeners, something that I've been thinking about a lot, is uh, the way I see our job. 
my job now as a freshly minted value investor, uh, baby steps, uh, wearing diapers, value investor, <laughs> is my job is to beat the all odds in Australia, to, to beat the market. You know, ideally, we want to double it, you know, but that's it. That's all I care about when I'm looking at our results week on week, month on month, year on year is are we doing what we want? Are we achieving what we want to achieve? And what we want to achieve, I think, is, uh, uh, you know, outperforming the all odds, getting our 15 to 20% on average compounded year on year with relatively low risk. Not no risk, but relatively low risk. We're not taking huge risks here. We're investing in companies that we think are undervalued and, and perform well and aren't going to disappear tomorrow. And, you know, we're stop-lossing if they go south for some reason. And, uh, you know, without putting in a huge amount of effort, don't have to spend 50, 60 hours a week on it, and just to, to hit our 15 to 20% or to double the all-lords, you know, depending on what the all-lords is doing. We say 15 to 20% because it usually, on average over time, performs somewhere between 9 to 11%. And that's it. So I feel good about that as long as I look at a thing and where, you know, at the moment, as of this particular moment, my dummy portfolio says the All Lords growth since the 31st of August when we clicked over into our new year with our portfolio because we started at uh, the beginning of September last year. Uh, All Lords is up 0.13%. It was negative about an hour ago. We're up 1.4% in the same period. So 1.4% doesn't sound like a lot, although it's only two months. But compared to the all odds, it's uh, significantly better. So I'm good. Is that how you think of it or am I uh, off track? No, that's how I think of it. I'd probably add a couple of things there. It's, uh, uh, you know, you could say it's kind of a false bravado to say we're up 1% when the all ordinaries is flat. And that's a great thing. It is. But ideally, we'd want to get more than that. But I think uh, we are we are somewhat tied to the market. So... Um, even though I try and be contrarian, it'll be very unusual for us to be going up when the market's going down, for example, or vice versa. So we are still directionally following the market. That's why I think double market is a good result. Uh, and and I think if we're not getting that sort of 15% plus um, figure, then we should look at alternative people out there who are getting more than we are and invest with them. And from time to time, that happens. But over the long haul, I think I've been able to beat most of the other performers in the market. And that's important that you judge things over a 10 or 20-year horizon and not last year or even the last couple of years or, or the current months sort of thing. That's hard to do if you're just getting started. So it's okay for you to do that. But for us, how do, you know, what, how do we measure our success year on year? Well, they report the fund management uh, performance every every six months. So. You know, Morningstar do it and Canstar do it. So you can always go and have a look at those and they generally will have a long-term um, return for the people who've been in the market for a long time. But but generally I find uh, you know, that for fund managers that we can invest in, either their funds are getting so big that they start to get a bit, um, have a bit of inertia, as Buffett always says they do because, um, because of the amount of cash they have to deploy, uh, or um, you know, they can't sustain high performance for a long period of time. So they're, they're, whatever their system is, it works, uh, it goes in cycles. Whereas if we're sort of uh, trying to 
take out the bad stocks from the market and find the good ones and then find the good ones that are priced well. I think, yes, we're kind of directionally going to follow the market, but we should do better than the market. And that's the aim. Yeah, my question in terms of the 20-year thing is I can't look at my 20-year performance and measure how it's doing. All I can look at is, you know, week to week, month to month. And, you know, what should I be, you know, looking to achieve in that period? I guess that's my question is how do I know if my portfolio's doing as well as it should? Is it my, should I be comparing it to the All Lords or should I be comparing it to something else? Uh, you should definitely compare it to the All Lords. If we can't beat the All Lords, then go and buy an index fund and go off and play golf and don't even bother trying to do it for yourself. But I think we can do better than that. My, my second point was, you know, when you have enough history, then go and compare yourself to some of the other fund managers and, and make a make an educated decision about whether you should be investing with someone else or doing it for yourself. But I, I think you need a couple of years of history behind you before you start um, making that big decision. Mm. And yeah. until then? Uh, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, if we underperform okay. the ordinaries, change. But, but right. um, no, I think we have to keep doing what we're doing. Right. And there was a um, – I once read a book many years ago, and I can't remember if its exact title, but it was something about – something like uh, growth at double market. And uh, the, the author the author set out to show that, that good companies, and I guess I kind of class myself as a company because I'm in the business of investing – investing happens to be money into stocks, but it could be money into widgets. Uh, and, and generally – you know, I forget now what the numbers are, but once you get to about double market growth, then you're sort of really maxing out the ability of someone to work well in given the constraints of operating in a particular market. Right. And I think that's important to know as well. I mean, you could probably look at uh, some people's returns in the short term and, and if they've been invested in uh, some of the internet growth stocks or the, after, or the um, buy now, pay later stocks, they've had a terrific year. Uh, but but I know I wouldn't feel comfortable investing in those because I don't know when they're going to turn south and turn south really heavily. Mm. Well, I figure you know if, if Buffett's sort of goal or performance has always been about double market, then um, that sounds like a pretty good benchmark to uh, go for. Yeah, no, I agree. That's it's one of the benchmarks we should use. Is again, if we can't beat Buffett, then let's put them put our money in Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> yeah, if you have. <laughs> $400,000 to buy a share. Well, they do have baby Burke, baby Burke, so you can buy fractional shares. Oh, do they? Oh, okay. Yeah. So I've been reading uh, The Little Book of Behavioural Investing by James Montier recently. You uh, familiar with that one? No, but I've read Kahneman and Thinking Fast and Slow. Is it similar to that? Well, it, the, the beginning of it's exactly that. Instead of <laughs> his talk... Instead of uh, talking about Kahneman's uh, System 1 and System 2, system two uh, I like this because he calls it um, McCoy and Spock, the McCoy br- oh, okay. brain and the Spock brain. <laughs> That's not bad. And, yeah, um, so he says the McCoy brain's the emotional one. Damn it, Jim! And uh, the, the Spock brain's the logical brain, and he's uh, you know, talks about the problems that we're not the, the problem that we have getting our brain to think logically and not jump to conclusions. Uh, and he talks about these three questions, which I've I've seen before. They pop up on Facebook and stuff, and I'm pretty sure that uh, these were all part of my interview questions when I was interviewing for Microsoft 20 years ago. But um, 
He says, Shane Frederick of Yale, formerly of MIT, has designed a simple three-question test, which is more powerful than any IQ test or SAT score, at measuring the ability of the C system, as he calls, I think that's the um, Spock brain, to check the output of the X system. Together, these three questions are known as the cognitive reflection task, the CRT. Consider the following three questions. A bat and a ball together cost $1.10 in total. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? $1.10 in total. The bat costs how much more than the ball, sorry? A dollar more. Okay, so the bat costs a dollar five and the ball costs five cents. Tick. All right. Okay. Hey. You go through to the next <laughs> round, Tony. Uh, question number two. If it takes... Five minutes for five machines to make five widgets. How long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? Uh, ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, it sounds like these are trick questions and it's trying to get me to say five minutes. But um, if five machines take five minutes, then 100 machines should take uh, 20 times as long, maybe. So 100 minutes? No, five minutes. Oh, I got it right the first time. <laughs> Damn it, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> and the third one's the old thing about the lily pads doubling in every size, doubling in size every day. If it takes 48 days for lily pads to cover an entire pond, how long will it take to cover half the pond? 47 days. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he says, psychologists have explored this question and come up with the following conditions which increase the likelihood of X system thinking. When the problem is ill-structured and complex, when information is incomplete, ambiguous and changing, when the goals are ill-defined, shifting or competing, when the stress is high because either time constraints and or high stakes are involved, when decisions rely upon an interaction with others. So, and that's, so, so I think that point about stress is really important. I mean, and that's one of the things we spoke about way, way back at the start of the podcast is if we can think in units rather than think in dollars and get used to managing money and, and pushing money around and, and becomes less stressful for you as the numbers get larger. Huh. You think of it in terms of just uh, like pieces on a board. Yeah, yeah. Buffett's always said it's not the – dollars he's made that motivates him, it's the game that motivates him. And so if you think of, think of it as a game and, and these are just units you're playing with or tokens, it'll take a lot of the stress out of it. And I think I, I maybe controversially mm. said to people, go down to the racetrack with a thousand bucks and get used to, to you know, um, moving money around that might hurt you if you, uh, if you lose it. <laughs> this is not <laughs> financial advice. Just want to be no. clear, Tony is not a financial advisor. <laughs> you said that last time. <laughs> and I'm also trying to segue into my Melbourne Cup tips as well. Well, let's leave that to the end of the show. Make people sit through everything before they get to that. <laughs> now people are fast forwarding, so we'll put it in actually in 20 <laughs> minutes and the people who fast forward, you go, ha ha. We um, spoke about that 19 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or did we? You have to listen to the whole thing to find out. <laughs> My point was going to be, I like, one of the things, and I know I've probably said this in different ways before, but one of the things I really like about the checklist system is it's helped me remove the emotion mm. from investing. Once I felt confident that the system worked, which, you know, mostly I had to accept initially 
on your say-so, uh, mm-hmm. but then we did our first year of the portfolio and that added additional evidence that it worked, certainly beat the All Lords. And then uh, once I'm confident in using the checklist, how to get the QAV score and rank the QAV score, then, uh, you know, when, these days when I go to buy something, when go buy a stock, it's, I, I feel very, very little emotion involved in it. Uh, it's like, okay, well, you know, this is a transaction. I'm buying one of the stocks that the system has produced. Uh, the stock may or may not do well. If it doesn't, I know what to do. If it does, great. But uh, the chances are that it will probably do well. High, you know, the odds are that it will do well rather than it won't do well. And so it's, I don't know, it's just made it um, sort of a lot easier for me to uh, execute. I, it's kind of a weird, like uh, a weird feeling when I'm doing it now. It's like I'm, I'm sort of a little bit removed from the, the fear and the emotion and the anxiety of throwing my money out there. Yeah, and look, Pete, that's right. And, and Buffett and Munger have always said that have a, have a system or a framework to invest in and that'll take the emotion out of it. And I mean, critics of this kind of style of investing will often say it's robotic, but that's, to me, that's one of its big advantages. It's robotic. We're applying a, uh, an algorithm and uh, it takes the thinking away, the, or the emotional um, input away from it. Yeah. And if you trust the algorithm and the system will work over the long term, then you go, okay, it's like uh, I turn on the light switch. I'm not nervous as to whether or not the lights are <laughs> going to work or the electricity is going to flow. I just trust the system. And if it, you know, if it stops working, then I'll worry about it then. But most of the time, it just uh, works. Anyway, yeah. But I like the uh, McCoy and Spock brain better than System 1, System 2. I like that. That's yeah. uh, a fun way to think about it. It is good, isn't it? One of the things that uh, Damien Parker suggested we do was pick three stocks each week to talk about that if you were going to buy something this week, uh, what three stocks would you buy and why? Um, do you want to do you want to start there? Yeah. Well, um, apologies, I've only really got one to talk about this week. Uh, okay. And I, have, um, as you know, I'm having a bit of a break in Wagga, so I haven't done a download for a couple of days. But I did write a stock journal last week before I left, and in that journal, people may have seen it, but uh, MFF, the Magellan Fund, is has. Uh, broken its three-point sell line, so it's out. But Samfire Resources, and the code is SFR, has uh, just become a buy. So that's that would be the one that I would ask people to look at. And again, this is not a recommendation. I think even when Damien suggested this, he suggested we do this as a way for him to start his own research, and I think that's a really good way of contextualizing it. So Samfire Resources has come in to the, the buy list, and that's that's the one I would be if I had some spare money this week, that's the one I'd be buying. And if I just do a, a bit of a um, talk about or a summary of Sandfire. Can I stop you before you do that? It's uh, way down on the buy list. Why are we looking at that with a score of 0.27 and got, not uh, something with a high score? I've got 0.33, so... Uh, but yeah, I take your point. The reason why I'd be looking at it is it um, is its average daily trade, which is uh, over four million dollars per day. So, uh, and that's one of the things that I have to do when I'm filtering stocks on my buy list is to take the one that we publish, but then pull out the ones which are too small to invest in. 
and that leaves the big ones. And so I'd be looking at Samfire, which has 4.156 million traded every day on average. Okay, fair enough. So it's mm. a big enough uh, stock for you. But wh- what uh, date did you do this download? The last, the one I've got up in um, our portfolio, the last buy list is the 27th of October. That's Tuesday. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was after that. Let me just have a look. Stock Journal yesterday at 5 p.m. Yeah, it reads Hi Cam, MFF Capital MFF Capital Investments breach that sell line recently is removed from the buy list, and Samfire Resources has just crossed its buy line, and is added to the buy list with a QAV score of 0.33. Yeah, didn't get it. It's weird. Yeah. Anyway, I I didn't do a full download. I just saw that that had crossed. I I actually raised an alert for it, a price alert for it in Stock Doctor, and which is why I got a message from them saying it had become a buy. I think on Friday afternoon I got that. And then uh, right. did a bit of analysis over the weekend and came up with it, added it to the QAV um, buy list. Uh, yeah, so it's a gold and copper miner, and I think uh, that's that's a fairly important thing because both of those commodities are doing well at the moment. Copper's just turned up. Gold's been up for a while. The thing, and I've owned Samfire in the past for full disclosure, but I've sold it, um, it breached its three-point trend line a little while ago. Let me have a look at the, the chart here. Samfire went right up to a high of like nine dollars, and then started to come off. And I sold it on the way down, as we as we do at about, uh, I would think somewhere around seven dollars, seven dollars fifty. Um, so it wasn't too bad for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just heading up again. The thing the thing I need to to just outline about Samfire Resources is uh, it's um, it's owns a a mine, and the, there's always been a question over. How long that mine has to go before it exhausts the uh, the ore that's in the the tenement? And uh, last time I looked at it, it was about three or four years. So it's coming to the end of its mine life, which always makes people a bit nervous. But it is taking an awful lot of money and exploring for replacements to that mine. And in the last week or so, it signed a deal for a tenement next door to the the Grusser mine, which is the one I'm talking about. Which gives it, um, I think it's like eighty or ninety percent of eighty percent, I think, of a joint venture uh, ownership of that particular tenement, and so it's trying very hard to uh, to find uh, other mines in the area, which which will allow it to leverage its current infrastructure at the Grusser, uh, but but continue to mine gold and copper after the Grusser runs out of ore. Okay, okay, and you but you like this. Uh... For what particular reason? The just the copper uptick side of it? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think so. The the share prices ticked up. I think last week because of the signing of the JV um, with the mine next door to Degrassa. So that's probably what's driving sentiment at the moment. But I think the the copper price increase will also start to see the share share price go north. As and just, if you think about mines as Highly leveraged plays on the underlying commodity price. So every time, uh, and it's a bit like thinking about internet startups when they talk about uh, every new customer goes straight to the bottom line. Once once the commodity price reaches break even for the mine, every every dollar of ore sold goes straight to the bottom line. So the underlying commodity prices are important, and copper's just turned and starting to go up. So if it continues to go up, then uh, it'll be um, really powerful in terms of supporting the share price. For, for all copper miners, but um, potentially this one as well. Okay, so not a financial, uh, no, not financial advice. But if you're looking for something, you might want to uh, do some analysis on 
SFR, Sandfire Resources. Correct, yeah. That reminds me, last week we replaced, uh, I think, uh, something in our portfolio. I can't remember what it was. I think we took out Grange Resources and put in CAA and C6C. And there was some discussion in our uh, on our QAV Club uh, Facebook page about one of those, uh, whether or not it was really going to benefit. Let me just uh, dig that up. Tim told Tim uh, suggested I don't buy into CAA on the Facebook page. Uh, I think because he didn't want the Cameron curse to kick in. And uh... fair enough, Tim. <laughs> it's only in our Brilliant. dummy portfolio at the moment, so you're safe. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, it was from Brett. Brett said, "Really interesting to hear." Following the 3PTL of commodities, which led to buying CAA, from what I can tell, CAA produces aluminium products, not aluminium itself. So would higher aluminium prices hurt rather than help them? Oh, that's Yeah, that's a really good, really good point. I think, um, yeah, I think it depends on the, uh, on the pricing power of CAA um, to sell aluminium product, but Generally, I would have thought if the if the commodity inputs going up, the like they would be able to put their prices up, and I would think most people in the market will do that. But it it does require I would have to do a fair bit of analysis to um, to look at the pricing power of CAA, and also to this is where uh, what they call um, low quartile cost costing come in. So I don't know where where CAA sits on that kind of Graph, but basically, the company that can produce the the product, the widget, the aluminium widget in this case, for the lowest quartile price, uh, will get obviously the most benefit uh, in terms of pricing power. So, uh, I, I'd, but I'd have to do a lot more analysis to work out whether that's the case or not. Yeah, so I take the point that was made. Um, it's not it's not necessarily the commodity input price will cause it problems if they can't pass that on to their customers. Uh, but I would have thought that given all the aluminium producers will have the similar price increases that they probably will pass on those prices. Right. But, yeah, good okay. question. Well, uh, good, good question, Brett. We'll uh, keep an eye on it. I'm trying to think of an analogy. It would be a bit like if, uh, if a steelmaker could not pass on a, its price increases, even though the iron ore prices are at its all-time high at the moment. There probably are steel makers out there who can't do that, but well, I was actually going the other way when the RBA puts out an interest rate cut, and the banks just don't uh, reduce their home loan rates. <laughs> uh, you know, that's right. Yeah. The inverse of that scenario. <laughs> yeah, and and that's I mean that's one of the things that Buffett looks for is um is is there some kind of moat that they can keep their prices higher even though the inputs are rising. Um, and the banks have a moat because they just all have to look at, look across the street and see what's what the, the other bank is doing. And if they all decide not to pass on the uh, the 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 rate decrease, then uh, happy days for them all. And I thought uh, when you were saying moat there, I thought you were you'd gone like regional Australia. You were like, "Hi, hey, moat. How's it going, moat? <laughs> you good, moat? No, yeah, the mate. famous moat that Buffett talks about, the moat around the business and. Oh. Um, right. You know, it's, the quick summary is that it's, it's a, a moat exists when a company can raise prices 
uh, when others when at a higher rate than their inputs when others can't. Mm, like Apple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the top of the line iPhone now is like uh, $2,000 ish. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Imagine going back 20 years ago and trying to tell somebody you'd be paying $2,000 in 20 years' time <laughs> for a mobile phone. We thought the everything was, would get cheaper. The thing was, 20 years ago, we were paying $2,000 for a mobile phone. <laughs> That's right. Well, 1990, yeah, I, when I bought my, around then, when I, oh, 89, 90, when I bought my Motorola, my first Motorola brick phone. Yeah, I think it cost thousands. You're right. Jeez. Yeah. And had about yeah. a 30-minute battery life. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> mm. And you had to mm. screw on the antenna. And everyone who saw me using it would call me a yuppie wanker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm guessing you were driving a BMW back then too. No, those were before the BMW oh, years. Okay. No. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Okay, uh, John, John Machen, uh, last, so he asked a question last week, but he wanted some clarification on it this week, if we can. Last week's question was, some of the companies on the buy list used to use their retained capital more effectively to make more profit than others. This is measured by return on equity or assets. Some also grow their sales more than others. Could we rank these higher? And I think you said it sort of factored into some of the financial ratings that we look at. And you also suggested, John, maybe test it out. And this week's question is, how does he <laughs> test this out? Yeah, good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that ROE and sales growth are factored into the checklist, so it's worthwhile exploring. And I'd probably add return on invested capital to that list as well, which is, I think, what John's also alluding to with, with uh, his question. Uh, so both of the metrics of return on investment and sales growth are available in Stock Doctor. So we can certainly do some filtering on the current results, but unfortunately, we don't get to filter the historical data from Stock Doctor. So the, in an ideal world, we'd have, say, five years worth of data for our checklist companies, and then we could add the two new metrics, return on um, equity and sales growth, and see if, if, those, uh, if those were added to the checklist, whether it would help us to improve our returns. And at the same time, I think what I'd probably do is also just, just uh, look at the – I'd rank companies by those two metrics, ROE and sales growth. And take the top twenty and look at those returns and see if they, independently of our checklist, did better or worse than our our QAV returns because that that can also be uh, a good way of seeing whether they should be added to the checklist. The problem is getting access to that data. So uh, I have thought over the course of the podcast series I should go to Stock Doctor and see if we can somehow get a maybe a data dump of old data so we can do tests like this. So I'll do that. Um, but the other way to do it is to accept the fact that we don't have a decision now. And if John wants to, he could he could add a couple of columns to both the Stock Doctor QAV filter that we use and the the check the download the master checklist download. And uh, and over the next six to twelve months, just see if those two things are improving the score or they're improving the returns on the checklist. And also, like I said, do a separate download for just those two metrics. 
and then rank companies by you know take the top twenty companies and see if a portfolio that was only invest only invested in companies that scored high on those two metrics outperformed QAV because that's another interesting analysis to do. My gut feel says, and I haven't done that, but I think I think those two metrics would are ones that people commonly focus on. So I would think the top twenty companies by ROE and sales growth would probably be heavily populated by all the very high high price companies. So um, once it's really interesting to see how things have evolved in the market because uh, ROE in particular was always something that people like I think from memory Peter Lynch would say was the the go to metric. You want a company that that uh, if I if it if I invest a dollar in it and then it earns a dollar and it can reinvest that dollar and make a good return higher than the market return, then that's kind of like an investment flywheel. So it's it's getting my dollar and it's reinvesting it at a high rate of return, and therefore it's going to compound quickly. So uh, you know back back before the dot com boom. Companies that could be very light with their manufacturing or maybe advertising companies that didn't have many assets would typically fall into the high ROE camp. So they could basically grow earnings and grow sales without having to invest too much in their business. Then along come the dot-com boom and uh, you know suddenly you had, I guess you could call them factories producing products, but but they just did, the, did it all digitally. and And so... Uh, yes, you still had investment in databases and, and IT costs, but they were oftentimes a lot less than having to go out and buy or build factories or go and buy and build stores. Uh, and so their ROEs were were really, really high, multiples higher than a typical industrial factory. And so they became very popular because up until the dot-com boom, people were always pushing that um, ROE was a great metric. So I think my gut feel says if we if we added ROE to our checklist, we'd start to introduce some of the higher value companies uh, into the into our analysis. And well, sorry, not higher value companies, higher price companies into our analysis. And they probably fall off at the hurdle of price to operating cash flow. So I guess what I'm saying is it's a good analysis to do. But we're moving away from being value investors if we start to invest in that type of company. Well, that's the end of the free episode for this week. For the brand new folks, I want you to know that each week we have a free episode and a premium episode. Free episode runs about half an hour. Premium episode usually runs for an extra half hour to an hour, depending on how many questions we have from our audience that week, because we spend a lot of that time answering questions. Uh, if you want to check out the premium episodes, you can go up to our website, qavpodcast.com.au and sign up for the two-week free trial. You get to have a look at the uh, premium episodes. You get to have a look at the checklist, the getting started guide, all of the video content that we have. Uh, you get invited to our VIP dinners and our VIP Zoom calls for club members. You get to ask Tony questions that we can answer. You get to get invited to our uh, Facebook group, our private Facebook group, etc., etc. So, And also uh, we get a, a private uh, club member newsletter each week we send out as well with some stuff in it. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au. But as I said, if you're brand new and you want to, you're trying to figure out what's going on, go back and listen to Season 3, Episodes 1, 3, and 5, 301, 303, and 305. And then you might also want to go back and listen to Season 1, as well, all of the free episodes in season one, where we go into a lot of detail about Tony's system and methodology, 
and figure out if this is right for you, if it's something that you want to go further with, if you want to learn how to invest like Tony does, then you can check out the uh, QAV Club. Uh, The other thing I always have to say is we're not financial advisors, so don't take anything you hear on this as financial advice. This is just here to teach how one guy invests and thinks about investing. If you need financial advice or tax advice, please go see a financial advisor or a tax advisor. Uh, With that, stay safe, good luck with your investing, and we'll be back next week.